Hey, podcast listeners, it's Dane. Before this episode gets started, I want to give you a quick reminder that Converge Podcast is a brand new home on the internet. The site is called gobecollective.com. That's gobecollective, G-O-B-E, gobecollective.com. And it's not only home to Converge, but also a number of other great resources for creative entrepreneurs just like you. We hope you take advantage of them. We hope you share the word. And I'll probably leave a couple of messages like this over the next few weeks with new episodes in case people are tuning in along the way. But for now, gobecollective.com is a place to check out. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's a good one. This episode of Converge with my guest, Josh Kaufman, is sponsored by Fastermind Coaching. Fastermind is your personal trainer for you and your business, getting the kind of results you've been looking for at a price any entrepreneur can afford. For more information, check out fastermindcoaching.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. It's one thing to make something. It's a whole other thing to bring that thing to market. And getting into business around creativity can just be scary. But sometimes if you're given a little bit of insight, some direction or a path, it can remove some of the confusion and cut to the chase about what you really want to accomplish and get you there faster than you ever could have imagined. Well, my guest today is Josh Kaufman. He's the author of The Personal MBA. He's the author of The First 20 Hours, these worldwide phenomenons. He was the number one author on Amazon in business. He was the number one on Audible of all books. His TEDx talk on his Personal MBA was downloaded over 3 million times. His reading list of the best books you could read if you want to get the equivalent of an MBA downloaded 3 million times. He sold over 200,000 copies of his book, The Personal MBA. And he's just an amazingly thoughtful guy beyond all of those metrics of success. He, he just approaches learning in an incredible way. In fact, his book, The First 20 Hours, is all about learning how to learn and offers a tremendous amount of insight on how you can make a difference with what you want to accomplish and give you that path, give you that roadmap that will remove the distraction, get you to where you want to go quicker, faster, and in a more authentic way. What is it that you actually want? Is is what you're doing right now leading to that end result or not? I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Josh Kaufman, welcome to Converge. Thanks, Dane. Great to be here. When we had a chance to meet over at Pioneer Nation, I think was the first time we met in person, I was thrilled to meet you. I'd, I'd read uh, your second book, The First 20 Hours, which was this nod to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour principle that it seems everyone and their dog knows about. And if I if I read it right, it seemed to be that you, you were saying, yeah, sure, the first 10,000 hours is a great idea if you want to become an expert, but what about the first 20? Like, if you don't get the first 20 knocked out, forget about 10,000. And by the way, 
you can get actually pretty far along the lines in those first 20 hours. A- am I catching a little bit of the drift of what that book was about? Yeah, you totally got it. It's um, there. <sighs> The 10,000-hour rule just seemed to come out of, of nowhere and, and be everywhere all the time. And uh, people started misapplying it. So, yeah, like, you know, you want to play golf on the PGA Tour? Uh, research says that's, that's pretty much what you're looking at. But what I noticed in, in researching skill acquisition is that that's not what most people were setting out to try to do. Most people just want to learn how to do something uh, fun or cool or useful or interesting. And so the question for me that I hadn't seen answered very well yet is, what does it take to get that? What, what does it take to decide to, that you're interested in, in something? Sit down and learn it. And, and how long do you have to practice until you're any good? So the first 20 hours was the story of figuring out what the early part of, of learning something new looks like and then doing that as, as well as you possibly can. And, and what I found is you can learn pretty much anything, um, whether it's a physical skill or a mental skill, something for work, something for fun. You can start with nothing and be really, really good at about the 20-hour mark, which is way less than most people expect. And is that because most people don't actually get to 20 hours? They, like they quit at hour three? or like, yeah, w- yeah. Why, why is that? Very few people make it to hour, I would call it four or five, um, because you can usually, if you get frustrated, you can usually power through that long. But once you get to hour four or five and you're still terrible, that's when it gets really hard. So most people, when they decide to learn something new, they have no idea what they want. They have not thought through the process of what it will take to actually um, learn about that thing or train in, in a specific, concrete way. And so they just kind of stumble through it. And the, the early hours of skill acquisition are really difficult for pretty much everybody. Everybody's terrible at first. Mm. And so if we know we're going to be terrible at first, we can actually use that as a tool. And so you can, at the beginning of the process, not while you're in it, you can say, I'm going to learn this thing I'm going to research how to learn it in an efficient way. So I'm going to practice the most important things first. And before I even get started, I'm going to pre-commit to a certain period of time where I'm going to do this. So, and that's where the 20 hours comes in. You can say to yourself at the beginning, I'm going to learn this thing for this period of time or I'm not going to start at all. Because that really, it, it gives you permission in a sense. If, if you're terrible, you're going to be terrible for 20 hours. And that's... It may not be fun, but, but you can do it. What you'll find is usually you start getting better around hour five or six, give or take. And by the time you actually reach hour 20, you're better than most people will ever be just because you actually invested the time that it took to learn that thing. I'm reminded of a couple of things. We recently had Entrepreneur on Fire's John Lee Dumas on the show. And John, if you don't know at home, he launched onto the podcast scene, having no broadcasting background or podcasting background at all. He came from the military though, and he really understood what it took to, to take a hill metaphorically. And he decided on the front end that he would commit to a daily podcast seven days a week, uh, indefinitely. And he had the system on how it was going to work and he had a format, he had a game plan on how he was going to do it, but he was very clear on what his commitment was. And it was shocking to see like within a year he had, easily was, you know, a notable on iTunes, but within two was generating a ridiculous amount of revenue. 
he separated himself instantly by his commitment. And I noticed you, you framed that out too, that there's something about committing to those 20 hours that, that really does create a, a separation between folks who kind of meander into these kinds of opportunities. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. And I think there's something very unique about adult learners. So there's, there's another myth floating around that it's easier for kids to learn how to do things than, than adults. Totally not true. Completely not true. Think of if you've ever watched, watched a kid trying to walk, how long does it take them to figure that out? Hmm. Years. Yeah. And how many times do they fall? A billion. I have four kids. Thousands, <laughs> thousands and thousands. I, I measure um, by how many times I had to pick them up, but go, keep going. That's great. Yeah, to totally. So it's, if you think about it in terms of, of raw hours, they're putting in way more hours than we are with all the fiddly things that we want to learn how to do, right? The thing that adult learners have that children don't is we're self-conscious about how good we are or so, not. So we can learn in a, in a more thoughtful or intelligible, intelligent way. Exactly. So part of it is, you know, because we're adults, we can go into it with a strategy. We can learn certain things in advance that will help us. But we can also choose to push through or ignore that little part of, of, of our minds that says, you know, you're really not good at this. You should probably stop. What I found is the conceptual parts of, of the learning process are way easier than most people imagine they'll be. So a lot of people, when they pick up first 20 hours, they, they kind of hope that, that it's going to <laughs> include lots of learning tricks, like easy ways to, to memorize things or, or whatever. The learning is actually the easy part. Um, the difficult part is, is the emotional part. How do you get out of your head and, and, and stop worrying about how good you are long enough to actually sit down and, and practice? Well, okay, so that this is great. So chapter one from in my relationship with you is the first twenty hours, and and then I stumbled into uh, the personal MBA, which is an order of magnitude, like a massive worldwide phenomenon. I mean, you have you know millions of people around the planet who credit this book as as their handbook for business. And I'm wondering if you could share. I love the story about you and Seth Godin, and and how so many people found out about your project of creating your own personal MBA. Could you tell that story? Yeah. So I, at the time that I started the personal MBA, I was still in school and, and I had a job offer out of school. I was going to be working for a big company. And by school, you mean undergrad? Yeah, undergrad. Yeah. So I, which uh, my background is in, um, in business technology. So like how to set up a Microsoft exchange server was one of the things that I was, I was doing that time. Sounds, like, sounds sexy. That's good. Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I had this job offer at a big company, Procter & Gamble, and um, I was going to be working with people who were graduating from the top 15 MBA programs in, in the United States. And uh, that was a little intimidating to me at the time. So I decided I wanted to learn all of this stuff, but I didn't want to postpone this job to go back to school for, for a couple of years to learn it in a classroom. I, I just wanted to figure out how it worked. And so um, there, was, there was a news story at the, at the time. A bunch of uh, prospective Harvard students hacked into the admission systems to figure out if, if they had gotten in early. And Harvard found out and said, by the way, if you access the system, you're, you're not coming here anymore. Hmm. And uh, Seth, in, in his uh, very classic way, uh, wrote a post about it and said, you know, Harvard just gave these students a gift because they could just read 30 or 40 good books and, uh, and they get the same thing out of it. So yay, congratulations to all of those students. 
And I thought that was really interesting. And, and I had been doing something on my own for a long time. I, I just, I went to the bookstore, I went to the library and I read a bunch of business books and I was really trying to figure out, you know, all of this business stuff. And so I put up my list of books that I had found most, most useful. And um, long story short, Seth was kind enough to uh, highlight that and, and send a bunch of people my direction. And um, that was the first time that I had any indication that this crazy side project that I was, I was working on on my, my own time, it was something that a lot of other people were interested in too. And so that little side project and a very kind gesture from a very smart man launched this crazy personal MBA project that is now still going almost 10 years later. world we live in where content is being produced at a mass level, a lot of it is redundant, but perhaps the context from which it's being written is somehow novel or can be delivered in a way that, you know, one learner could get that another couldn't. What do you think of the state of, of business education right now, uh, especially when it comes on the book front, like not the, the formal education and higher education, but more given the amount of content that's coming out, can you just comment a little bit about how, how folks at home might want to relate with that body of work to get the most from it. Yeah, I, I think it's probably the best piece of advice I can give is train yourself to read for information and not for entertainment in this area. And so there are lots of books, and I would call like business profile biographies is probably the clearest example of this. There are some books in the business category that are tremendous stories. And so, you know, one thing that, that probably makes sense to single out is the biography of Steve Jobs. Yeah. Well-written, entertaining book. But if you're reading for application, you're not going to get as much out of reading something like that. You're not going to get as much practical information out of that as you would reading, say, bankable business plans. If the intent is to learn something that you can apply to the business that you're trying to start. Mm. And so I think... Um, Business books have been around for, for quite a while, and a lot of the new ones that are coming out are, are either business entertainment stories or they're trend pieces. So this is why, you know, Twitter is the next big marketing wave, something like that. Mm. You can cut down your reading list by probably 80 to 90 percent if, if you just filter to, to, is the intent of this to teach me something that I can apply to my business right now, or is the intent of this to be interesting and entertaining, um, not necessarily useful. Yeah. So I'm reminded of a book like, I don't know if you read, did you read Creativity Inc.? Uh, no, I haven't read that one yet. Okay. So, so Ed Catmull, it's really a profile on Pixar. Uh, and he's like the least sexy of the partners at, at Pixar. And he actually comments on Steve Jobs, who was again, one of the more notables. Um, like it was very much a narrative, but it was like, he would tell a story and then talk about the principles of the story. Like what, what were his learnings along the way? And it read like a management book, actually. But I'm wondering, so it's not just books that are, if you're in agreement with me, that that, so that could actually be valuable. You haven't read it, so I'm not asking you to endorse it. But I found it extraordinarily helpful because it kept me in the conversation. The narrative arc kept me in the conversation. But then we could step away from that narrative arc and actually pull out principles that were valuable. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that you should be able to do that with any good book that you read. So af after or as you're reading it, are you able to write down three to five things that you are going to do in a different way 
because you have read this book. I think that and for me, what I'm trying to do as, as I'm doing all of this reading and research is really find those fundamental ideas. So to me, the test of a great business book is, does it contain at least three to five things that, that I can do different now that I've read this? And does this book really focus on the essential ideas that I need to know and people need to know in order to do well in business? And if those are true, it's a worthwhile read. I do think a lot of people could improve the quality of their reading time by reading more books and reading less random stuff on the internet. That's, that's a pretty quick win. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like giving up soda. Yeah. Like, and it, it's like it an, feels an, inst an instant one. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's so good for you. <laughs> I mean, I, um, just in the process of, of writing books, I have way more respect for what it takes to produce a finished book, regardless of the level of quality than I did at the beginning. So, you know, when you read a book, you, you are reading often decades of experience and, and at least a year, sometimes three years, sometimes 10 years of research and writing that it took to produce. And you just don't get that quality by reading a random blog post most of the time. Some of what I'm hearing implicit in, in this process of reading is, is a skill set, right? And you, you care a lot about developing what you call core human skills. And it's so funny because before we had a chance to talk about this, one of the areas that I talk a lot about, I call them core human technologies because I was trying to be clever. You're just more elegant with it because it, it is entirely right. Like that there's these, these kind of ideas or not ideas, skill sets that really are basic. That if you, if you have a working knowledge of each of them, uh, you are going to find a tremendous advantage in the marketplace. And, and they're, and they're very kind of, again, fundamental. Like you talk about, you know, reading and writing and presenting and so forth. Talk a little bit about how that plays out in your own life, the, what the core human skill development is and, and what you recommend for others. Yeah. So there, I, I wrote a post about this and, and the title of that post, if you want to look it up is, is do you have these core human skills? And the, the way I, I tend to approach my research in general is, you know, what are the things that people do most of the time? And, and what are the things that if people improved would get them really substantial benefits for that time and that effort. And so I, w I was thinking a lot about, okay, what if, if you're going to do well in the world and, and we'll keep the definition of that very broad. So doesn't matter, you know, the, the project, the market, the industry, whatever. If you just want to do a good job, you want to get really good results and, and you want to be efficient in how you do that, what would be the most useful things to know? And in the post, I, I talk about how, you know, if you're able to do research and collect information and distill that down to the important stuff and get rid of um, the not important stuff, that's good and useful to have. So you should probably get good at that. Writing is that, is that or being able to communicate an idea. So writing and speaking are, are very similar, different, different methods, but the same thing. I have an idea in my head. I want to explain that in a clear and compelling way to other people. They're worth getting good at. Things like making decisions, things like thinking through all of the available options and, and trying to discern what is the best option right now, uh, given that the future is, is fundamentally changing and uncertain and you don't know what's going to work in advance. That's a good skill to have. Um, being able to interact with other people in a way that makes you likable and compelling and persuasive, that's a great skill to have. 
And so I, I came up with a list of, of 12 of these sorts of things. And um, it's still, it's, it's a good way of prioritizing of, of all of the ways that you can spend your time and energy to get better uh, right now. Those are probably going to give you the best bang for the buck. So if you're in an environment where, for example, you need to sell or you need to present, training there is probably going to be a really good, efficient use of your time. There are all sorts of things that you can learn, skills that you can acquire. So it just stands to reason that you should probably acquire the most important ones first and spend the bulk of your time there. Brent, you are, are a unique guy. Like, it seems like there's some undergirding to all of this. You, it's not just that you uh, kind of approach, well, you approach life in a certain kind of way for a certain kind of reason. I don't know if, if folks who interview you ask this very often, but I'm wondering if there's any kind of backstory to your own motivation. Like, like why, why do you think you're wired the way you're wired and, and, and you approach life the way that you do? And just as an example, like you seem to be, um, you walk life by a different drum than the average person that I meet at a place like Pioneer Nation. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're intentional. Like you have a kid, you decide to go offline for a while. You work on your projects uh, really methodically. You, well, even recently you, you wrote that incredible blog post on, uh, I don't know when people are going to hear this in particular, it could be down the line and it'll be older then, but you wrote the piece on uh, social status versus substance and, and invited people to kind of put on a new filter to look at the choices that we're making that I'm making and deciding like, is this trying to help me climb some social ladder? And if it is, if I can just resist that just a little, that I could actually trade that in for something that will get me a much more radical return on investment. And you seem to be that kind of a guy that is constantly looking for a better return. And I got to believe there's a story behind that. And I thought I would just ask to see if you have anything to say. Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. The first is I've always wanted to be primarily a wise person, if that makes sense. Sure. Like of, of all... <laughs> Of all of the things that I can remember, like as, wanting as opposed, to be, as opposed to a wise guy, guy. As, yes, right. I right. can sometimes be a wise guy too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I want for for a very long time, I've I've wanted to make sure that I've I'm thinking clearly about things first and foremost, and then using the result of that thinking to change the way that I act and make decisions. And, and a lot of that is why I think writing is interesting because I, I don't think you can write very well unless you do a lot of very clear thinking first and then try to structure and present it in a compelling way. I, I think that's an interesting challenge. And I think if, if you're doing clear thinking in a, in a good way, it, it does change the way that, that you think and act and, and make decisions. And so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out if I'm really clear about what I want. Like, do I, know, do I know what I want? Do I know why I want that? And if that's actually what I want, am I doing the things that I, I need to be doing or, or are most effective to do to actually get that? And if I'm not, that's, that's probably a pretty clear indication that I don't really want that, so I should rethink it. I don't know, I don't know if I can explain it better than that, but, but I, I very much value thinking about something in a clear and accurate way and doing something with that, then, then I value pretty much anything else. At our, uh, our go summit, our little conference that we have each January here in Southern California, um, 
Seth Godin dropped in on our conversation and somebody asked uh, him whether, like what to do if they had a marketing problem. And his response was, uh, most people who think they have a marketing problem actually have a mediocrity problem. And it was kind of, you know, mm. a classic Seth moment. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And But what I was struck by in that relative to this conversation was uh, I think there's a, some degree of self-deception going on in all of us where we don't really know what our motivation is. And a minute ago, you asked the question, like, do I really know what I'm after? And I'm curious from your vantage point, because you have a chance to interact with a lot of people who want your insight on how they're going to run their business where do you see people being most deceived in terms of their, maybe their motivation or like earlier you're commenting about, you know, resist the temptation to read blogs or resist, resist the temptation to go for entertainment when you need more, something more principled or however you want to put it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but where do you see the easiest fix that if someone, if folks just made a little shift in their self-awareness, it could really open up some possibility for them? Yeah, I think the biggest systematic issue is, is and you mentioned it earlier, I wrote quite a bit on the whole idea of status malfunction. So whenever there's an opportunity to increase our social status in some way, we tend to really think that that is an awesome idea and we'll change our plans and priorities to make sure we can do the, the, the status heavy thing versus something that, that may be or may feel a little bit lower status, but is actually way more effective. So uh, I'll give a tangible example to this. A uh, while back, this was probably a year and a half ago, I was invited to appear with Sanjay Gupta on CNN to talk about the first 20 hours. And that was a really neat experience. Like went to Atlanta, got to sit in his studio, got to talk with Sanjay uh, before and after we shot. It was a cool experience. When you look at that experience from a marketing perspective, as in, is doing this helping my business by selling a lot of books? I can tell you that it was not effective. Hmm. Just wasn't. It was a cool experience. It was, I was happy to meet Sanjay, but it was not effective. You know what was more effective? What's that? Appearing on a podcast. <laughs> Seriously. And, and I did quite a bit of that when, when First 20 Hours was coming out because I love talking with people who run podcasts. And we, we had some really awesome, fun conversations, not as high status, but those conversations actually turned into book sales in a, in a really interesting way. So, you know, a lot of times when there's an opportunity to do something sexy or attention grabbing, we tend to prioritize that well and above uh, the things that will actually do the, the thing that we say we're most interested in at the, at the time. And so I think just thinking through and, and getting clear for yourself, you know, what is it that you actually want? Is, is what you're doing right now leading to that end result or not? Those are really good, useful questions to, to ask. And, and I think most people don't. So, for example, when, when um, I actually have done this twice now, when, when both of uh, my kids were born, basically, basically disappearing from the face of the Internet. Uh, because one of the things that I decided a long time ago back in my corporate career uh, was that when when my wife and I started a family, I was going to be very involved as as a dad. And I, I saw too many people who would, you know, kiss their kids on on the head on the way out the door in the morning and then kiss them on the head at night when they got back at, at eight or nine o'clock after working all day. Mm. Like, I didn't want that. And I, and I knew from the start that I didn't want that. 
So, you know, that was a decision that that was made well in advance of of all of the of, of both books coming out. So my daughter, Leela, was born, let's see, 10 days before Personal MBA came out. And so my first book, super exciting. It was it was in Barnes and Noble everywhere. Like I had been working for years to reach that point. And I actually didn't go to Barnes and Noble to see it on a shelf for, I think, nine weeks. Wow. Because it, it just, it wasn't important um, or it wasn't as important as, as, as the other thing. And so, yeah, I, I think training yourself to notice when you are being influenced by status is one of those things that, that can change your brain very much for the better. I noticed that in my own read and I felt indicted, honestly, when I read that, I thought, oh man. In fact, one last question I want to ask is, is there a difference between status malfunction and folks who are actually trying to create authority or authority in a particular space uh, or, or people who are looking to establish authority? Are they just kidding themselves? It's really about social climbing. No, I, I think there's actually, um, there are very good uses of status. And, and I think establishing authority in, in a particular topic or, or market, that's a really good and valuable use of it. So, you know, the, it, and it's, it's kind of a subtle dividing line because, you know, you can slip from gathering productive status into status malfunction pretty, pretty yeah, easily. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where, so, so for example, uh, and this, this is classic in, in all of the marketing books that you will ever read, read. If you have a good status signal um, that shows that a lot of people really have, have purchased this before, like it, have benefited from it, would do it again, those social signals are very, very valuable from, from a marketing standpoint. So the lesson is not don't, you know, ignore that, don't collect them, don't use them. It's more about what you choose to do or not do to get the results that you want. So, and I think it's, it's really, really easy to spend time on the sexy stuff and not enough time on the stuff that actually makes the difference. So it, it's more of a, when, when you're preventing the cognitive bias, it's about how you think about what you're trying to do and how you make the decisions that you make about what to work on or not. This was episode 046 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes as well as Go, the unconference for creators looking to grow their business. Want to come? Check out ConvergeSummit.com. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for audio production. And a special thanks to Josh for being with us. Visit him at joshkaufman.net. Finally, if you haven't shared an episode of Converge with a friend, would you? Think of one person right now who you think would benefit from my conversations with Seth Godin, Chris Gillibo, Ann Hanley, Ryan Holiday, and many, many others, and invite them to join in. You caring enough to do that sort of thing is a nod to us that we're doing something right, and like leaving those reviews at iTunes, thank you, we see you, it's a really big deal, so thanks. That's it for now, I'm Dean Sanders, I cannot wait until next time.